ecological context. Why are we planting corn in western Kansas where it's a prairie? It was designed to be where animals graze. Do you know why we do that? It's called crop insurance. It assures that that producer will get reimbursed and farming out of ecological context. Can you imagine how it feels to stand up in front of a group of farmers? There was 200. I'll never forget. And I was in Holyoke, Colorado, and I stood up and says, why are you farming out of your context? Where's the animals? It's a statement. I said, look, where's the grazing animals? I didn't tell you you can't grow monoculture wheat. What if you grew monoculture wheat like this? Every seventh year you rest that land and it's mostly permanent grasses. Then you cycle and you've got animals in the system so that when you do want to no-till and plant wheat, you're good. The system's recharged. It can handle that occasional disturbance of a monoculture. It's how you do business. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. This episode of Where Hope Grows is a special one. It's near and dear to my heart for various reasons. But first off, this is a live recording taking place at Rome Ranch on the regenerating pastures of our own property here in Central Texas. This was the main stage of our first annual What Good Shall I Do conference that we host annually with the support of Force of Nature. We have an absolute legend in the soil health community illuminate both our minds and our hearts. Ray Archuleta is also known as Ray the Soil Guy. He hails from the farmlands of Seymour, Missouri where he himself is walking the walk and talking the talk. Now, Ray is a professional soil scientist. He's a conservationist, a water quality specialist, and an agronomist. With over 30 years of experience working for the Natural Resource Conservation Services, Ray is the fucking man. Now, if the name Ray Archuleta resonates and sounds familiar, it's because you might remember him from the Kiss the Ground documentary. Ray is the NRCS agent that walks into this rural industrial community where agriculture is collapsing. And he's in a room with all these good old boys that are looking at him like, oh, this dude doesn't know shit. And then Ray gifts that room with his profound capacity to make connections to biological living systems to painting a path in which we can work with mother nature and in typical ray style he highlights the importance of soil health as an underlying foundation on which the entire biological system works now in this live recording we're going to hear a lot from ray some of the highlights we're going to go over the six principles of soil health which he pioneered 
We're going to talk about how context is everything. We're going to discuss the common challenges of the modern day rancher, how ecological and a biological approach differs from a chemical and mechanical approach. And then we're going to talk about the number one barrier to transitioning to these regenerative systems. And that is a transition in the mindset of the producer, of the land manager, of the rancher, of the farmer. A shift in mindset is what it takes to succeed in agriculture. I'm freaking fired up. I don't want to waste any more of your time. Let's get on the main stage with Ray, the soil guy. Science is only as good as if you're asking the right questions. And if the premise is correct, wrong premise, wrong result. So what should be the premise of our science? Does it emulate nature? And does it glorify the human body? If it doesn't, question the science. I question science all the time. It is not a God. It is a process of learning. Because how many times do we hear during this whole pandemic, follow the science, follow the science. But who's paying for the science? Big Pharma, P-H-A-R-M-A, or the other side of Pharma, F-A-R-M-A. Please understand there is no money in health. There's no money in health. Can you imagine if all of us were healthy in this country? Have you ever seen a snapshot of the beach in 1960s? Most everybody was thin. And it all changed. I remember growing up, they told us to eat vegetable oil. I remember that. My mom was a cook. She, she took care of five kids. All of a sudden, we went from lard to vegetable oil to all the oils. And all of a sudden, we started going down this, this direction. Some of the oils are fine. Most of them are not. So it's kind of interesting how the science has led us. Careful with science. Always follow the right premise. Okay, principles. I'm not going to... We always talked about these principles. I knocked it down to four. You know, look, the human mind, if it's four, five, or six sequential, you won't remember it. You won't remember it. But my first, I added context to the sixth principle in 2006 because I knew we were missing the most important thing. So what are the five other principles? Nature does this on her own. A living plant, and she creates her own skin with a living plant. Cover the soil and the living diverse plant. That's one of the principles. Lower your disturbances, chemical, physical, and biological. What's a biological disturbance? Biological disturbance is overgrazing. But grazing is a natural occurrence if it's done right. You just used a biological tool to diminish the soil. Again, understanding the tools. So... Diversity, living root, armor the soil, do not disturb. Pretty simple. But which one did we leave out? The one was the most important one, the human context. Context is everything. Context, context, context. As an ex-NRCS employee, I would walk to a farm. Now, keep in mind, folks. My job was to promote conservation, and I went to farmers and ranchers, and I did this for 30 years. I could tell right away when you walked into the farm and ranch, you can tell the dynamics right away. 
But one of the things they did not teach us as an agency, we came with science, data. People do not relate to that. They relate to relationship. You know what they forgot to tell us? You need to understand the context, the social context of the producer, the cultural context. What does that mean? Do you know one of the main reasons we cannot promote regenerative agriculture throughout the country? The social pressure is brutal. What does that mean, social conditioning? Case in point, I love that. When they did a study with monkeys, they put them in this room, hung a bunch of bananas, and as soon as the monkeys reached for the bananas, they squirted it with a high-pressure hose, and the monkeys freaked out, and they conditioned them not to touch the bananas. They bring in a new monkey. The monkey doesn't know a difference. He goes for the bananas. The other monkeys beat it up. Sound familiar? All of you have experienced that. When you started going into regenerative ag or anything different, you were that new monkey. And then you became the social conditioning. I'll never forget when I went as teaching, there was a guy with a PhD, master's in ecology, and a PhD, and he was a, he was a professor at Mizzou. And he came and he saw my demos and he says, oh, Ray, I am so angry. I said, what, did I offend you? He goes, no, Ray. My ecology training was right. I said, yes, it was. But you were conditioned by everybody around. You don't know what you're talking about. This is the only way you can farm. Got conditioned. So social, cultural. Also, too, when I, deal, when I work with the Amish, when I work with the Mennonites, do you know what it is for them, too? And when I work with the Native Americans and the people from Hawaii, the land is spiritual to them. My goodness, I love the Hawaiians. To them, the land and the spirit are together. Christianity teaches the same way. If you really read the book for yourself, it's the same thing. So I have to take that spiritual con context for them. Guess what's the other one? Ecological context. Why are we planting corn in western Kansas where it's a prairie? It was designed to be where animals graze. Do you know why we do that? It's called crop insurance. It assures that that producer will get reimbursed and farming out of ecological context. Can you imagine how it feels to stand up in front of a group of farmers? There was 200. I'll never forget. I was in Holyoke, Colorado, and I stood up and says, why are you farming out of your context? Where's the animals? Do you know how that went, right? That's why I told him my name is Zach Bush. <laughs> Don't take it personally. <laughs> but it's a statement I said, look, where's the grazing animals? I didn't tell you you can't grow monoculture wheat. What if you grew monoculture wheat like this? Every seventh year you rest that land and it's mostly permanent grasses. Then you cycle and you've got animals in the system so that when you do want to no-till and plant wheat, you're good. The system's recharged. It can handle that occasional disturbance of a monoculture. It's how you do business. Case in point, did you know that Kansas? Kansas, if you go back in the early 1800s, do you know that 25% of the land, now keep in mind, that time everybody got 160 acres. Remember when that first land movement? 25% was always in permanent grass. Why is it, audience? Why? Why was it 
consistently always in grass in that time period. You had to feed the draft animals. And as soon as the tractor came, no need to feed something hay or keep it in permanent grass. Then we started having the dust bowl. We changed the ecological climate. So ecological context is incredibly important. Now, I want to add something up about that with ecological context. Now, I'm going to give you an example, and we have to be very, very careful not to be super, super emphatic because the natural system will always slap you in the face. One of my emphatic things, and I still believe this to this day, it depends where you're at. We used to lamb, I love to lamb the way the creator designed it, early spring, early May. Most all, eco, all animals do that. But guess what? If you're raising hair sheep from a Mediterranean climate and you put them in hot, human, humid southern Missouri, that's out of context. So you know what I did? I shifted my lambing into the fall where it's the driest and the less parasites. Here's the problem I had in Missouri. I have barber pole worm passed by deer. We have huge deer population. So I was losing lambs because the moment those lambs in early stages, they were susceptible to parasites. And I said, man, I am losing my hiney. I said, what if, and my daughter, daughter, I'm going to give my daughter Cassie credit. She's because she watches those animals. And that is one indicator of health. Watch the animal. I think sometimes we think in regenerative agriculture, we, it's okay to go broke because we're saving the land. That's ridiculous. You have to make money. The farm has to pay. Regeneration is also the last principle of economic context. We have to take the farmer where they're at. But back to my point real quick. So we moved our lambing to the fall. It's the driest. And then I have another invasive species called endophyte fescue. How many know about endophyte fescue? How good do animals do in the summer? There's a fungi in them that hurts the capillary, and these animals do not gain weight during a heavily monoculture endophyte fescue grass in the summer. And then my daughter said, Dad, do you notice our animals look really good? Because we had some mishaps. Animals escaped. We had lambs in the coldest winter last year. You remember last year's winter? Brutal. Got to negative 25 in Missouri. Never say that in front of guys from North Dakota. They go, ha, 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 ha. I do negative 25 in my underwear, right? But for me, it was brutally cold. You guys remember? It was brutal. But guess what? My lambs looked awesome. So here's what I'm telling you about that principle. When you tell people about a principle that most of the way nature always asks, do you have invasive species in your system? Endophyte fescue was mine and barber pole worm. I, not, there's no way I'm going to stop it. But here's what I did. I tweaked it. So now we lamb in October. It's dry. Fescue's phenomenal because it's got its first frost. 15 to 18% protein. Animals look fantastic. And all my lambs are gone before the early spring. 
one observation. That's called adaptive management. You make a decision. But what I am saying to you, that principle of context is so critical. Context is about you understanding the system. And then when you go talk to somebody, this is why people fail when they go try and take organic to a very dry, brittle environment. Remember that there was an article of a big company bought organic into Dakotas. And then he listened to Dr. Beck, who is the father of diversity, and he said, it, you do not till the soil here in Dakotas. It will not work. Then he listened. He had worked for years changing that system into no-till and diverse mixes. They tilled, they didn't listen, came out on the front paper, organic gone bad. Thousands and thousands and thousands of acres blowing like the dust bowl. Did not understand context. How about Sri Lanka? How many heard of the article in Sri Lanka that organic failed? Anybody read that? Ryland sent it to me, he said, Ray, what happened? I said, Ryland, they did exactly what you're not supposed to do. They didn't understand their context of their soil. Where are you and where's your soil in its condition? Where's it at? Is it very bacteria dominant? You don't cut people out of fertilizer and chemicals. You know, in the article, people went hungry. We've got to be careful how we wean producers from these inputs. It takes a while. And people ask me, well, how long does it take, Ray? It's the function of the producer. Every personality is different. I tell people, start off with five acres. Some producers start on a 1,000. They freak me out. I had one producer do 300, and it bit both of us in the butt. I didn't want that. You got to learn the logistics. Okay, so what's the difference between logistics and strategy? And I'll go down here. Here's the difference. My daughter served five years in Iraq. Uh, she went to, uh, she was an MP in the military. She's the, the vet that's going to be a vet now. And she served in Iraq. And my, I had several daughters go into the military, and she told me one of them was logistics. Well, Dad, all you do is talk about soil. You don't know nothing about what I do. So I looked up logistics, and I go, wow, this is cool, logistics and strategy. Strategy is this. When America went to Iraq, they had a brilliant strategy. But logistics is this, folks. If you cannot get bullets and toilet paper to the men, you lose the war. If you do not get the covers in time, you lose. Do not plant in time, you lose. If you do not have the infrastructure for the fencing and the watering, you lose. If you don't have guard dogs, you get your hiney kicked. I lost lambs because I went because I did not have the guard dogs. Logistics is brutal. I will argue with anything, anybody, farming and ranching is the most difficult profession in the world. Forget the sea students, you have to be brilliant and you have to have an incredible temperament. I'm gonna tell you as a rancher, I still hate losing one sheep. It bothers me, it's personal. And, it, and, my, and sometimes I feel like maybe I don't have the, the constitution. Gabe Brown, I call Gabe, and Gabe and I talk to Ray. Welcome to ranching, my friend. Calms me down. He's the kind of a tranquilizer. We, and those are the kind of things you kind of relax. That's why you need a community, okay? Boy, now, 
Folks, it's about this, and it's always about this, is the learning pyramid of pillars. Mindset is everything, folks. Skills is what you're doing, Megan. You're going to the Soil Health Academy. You're going to go listen to Elaine. You're learning about the ecology, the life. Do you know what books I read a lot? Soil ecology and agroecology. I've got my books in textbooks, folks. I want to know how the natural system works because that's my farm and ranch. I want to know. And because I have people like you asking me, about how about this, Ray? How about this? How about this? You know, I have to have... So you got to pick up the skills and then the tools. Now watch this. I do not recommend grazing animals into cropping systems unless you pick up the, you have the right mindset, you pick up the skills, and you know how to use your tools because you're going to have a failure and you're going to be pissed. Do you know what happens to the majority of farmers and ranchers? They give up very quickly. They get excited. They hear some of our talks. They had no real understanding. They had a failure, and they go, to the, uh, they go to the coffee shop, and they blast it. You know what I tell producers now? Please, if you do not, are not committed, if you are not committed, please do not do cover crops. Continue to be a servant to the chemical companies. I tell them that. Because I do not want you going to go blast the only practice in this country that's ever going to salvage our planet. It's one of the single practices. I tell people, now folks, I'm going to ask you, if you had one practice and if you were king, what practice would it be? Only one. What would it be? In cropland, just say cropland. What would it be? Living plants, folks. Even above no-till. And I am a staunch no-tiller. But one thing no-till can't do, it can't feed the life. Can't do it. Living plants, folks. Okay, let's take a break because I have a really powerful example. Something that I'm going to fill your mind with. It's just this beautiful image of this system working and why a green growing plant is step number one. Now, after this presentation, I spoke with Ray and he illuminated my mind with this example. I wish he would have said it in this presentation, but because he didn't, I'm going to take the time to communicate that to the best of my ability. Now, there's this proverb. It's an ancient proverb, and there's actually many of these proverbs from all over the world. And it goes something along the lines of how a plant is the mouth of the soil. And when you think about this, it makes tons of sense because through the beauty of a plant, the soil eats. The soil is fed nutrients. Through the mouth of a plant, the soil can drink because it's through the root structure of that plant that the soil system forms aggregates and it becomes porous. So water can infiltrate. And it is through the mouth of the plant that the soil can breathe. Again, we're talking about porosity. We're talking about carbon. We're talking about the conversion of that into sugars, carbohydrates to feed soil biology. And then the symbiotic return and the exchange of minerals, complex ecosystem under the ground, it becomes alive. And that has to start with the plant. Without the living plant, that system doesn't work. I'm telling you, friends, 
once you embrace this powerful imagery, you're never going to think about plants the same. Remember, the plant is the mouth of the soil. And now back to Ray. So you got to understand mindsets, skills, and tools. Again, this is the biggest problem. I already talked to you about it. Now, when you go, we have medical people here. And aren't those the most vital signs you do as a doctor, right, Zach? Well, guess what? There's vital signs in the soil. Same thing. I'm telling you the incredible analogous and how the body, human body, and the, and the soil are the same way. It's, it's incredible. In fact, as Zach was talking, I was saying, man, Zach's telling us like, man, we're, we're dirt on legs. So if somebody calls you a dirt bag, you shouldn't take it personally. Because we are. It is amazing how we are such part of the biome. Okay. So it's these indicators will tell me if the ecosystem processes are working. Tomorrow, I'm going to show you the ecosystem processes in action. Okay, I'm not going to talk about them now. But here's the interesting thing. I found that, by the way, if you don't have this book, you should have it. Everybody write this down. Nature and Properties of Soils, 15th edition. Everybody should have that book, and you should read the carbon section, the nitrogen section. It's a fascinating book. It's the sophomore textbook. I know Dr. Weil, and I'm telling you, it is a brilliant book. What boggles my mind, how many of you would get in the plane if you knew that the pilot did not have any understanding of aerodynamics? Hey, raise your hand. I didn't think so. But how come as a farming community and ranching, we know so little and we accept to know so little about the soil ecosystem? We hardly know nothing, not even basics. Carbon and nitrogen ratio. I get these glazed eyes. And that's agronomist too. I'm not throwing anybody in the bus. I was like that 15 years ago. Now, here's the thing in the page right there. Now, Zach, I want you to say that complicated word for me. Say it loud, man. Ethnopedology. I'm glad he said it because I would have screwed it up. What's interesting is they went and took all kinds of indigenous people's type of classification. You know what the number one was of a, of a large percentage of the ethnic groups? You know what the first one they looked was? Color, then texture. Go down, and then organic matter is not the top. Three, four, five down, stoniness, topography, land, drainage, fertility. But what boggled my mind, you know which was the lowest? Soil temperature. Why do you think that is, class? Come on, somebody out there that had a lot of ice cream, you're wound up, and you're going to go, yeah. Why do you think soil temperature was so low? Among all the ethnic, ethnic groups? No thermometers, that could be, but you don't want, you don't need a thermometer because I can go with my hand like this. Ooh, hot. You got to do, how many of you actually just put your hand on a bare soil and walk to the grass? So you don't need a thermometer. So what do you think it is? Here's my opinion. Maybe we just don't really, really believe it's alive. See, what were the four vital signs? Temperature, 
Your temperature starts going up. You're, you're concerned. It's alive. The soil is stinking alive. It's a living. None of the groups even acknowledge that because we still don't. You can't see it. You have to look in a little microscope. Okay. Now, self-organizing, self-healing, self-regulating. Again, so what hurts these self-organization? The moment you till, guess what happens? What helps me when I have to do a tillage event? You know what's the first thing I start putting back right away if I have to do a tillage event? Living roots. Because then they start the reorganization. They start building the aggregates. They start building the spheres. What the, what the system is asking you, folks, is to provide it so it can heal itself, so it can regulate itself. So it can self-organize itself. So as a doctor, what do you recommend, Zach, for this process? Good food, right? Avoid doctors. He's right. I actually said that at the Nobel conference. Best way to stay healthy is don't go to the hospital. It's true. Eat well, exercise, live well. Am I against doctors? No, we need them. But we need more holistic practitioners. Now, secondary secession. You need to understand this. This is basic ecology. And I give credit to Elaine Ingham. Thank you, Elaine. Because you know what she taught me? So what is secondary secession? This is pretty simple. If the people of Texas died of some weird virus, part of Texas will go back into range. Some will go back to savannas. That is secondary secession. That is nature's direction heading that direction on her own. She'll do that on her own, folks. Now, why should I care? You should care. Because if you're grazing, if you're farming, if you have cropland, you need to understand in every part of that secession, the biology changes. This one as predominantly cropland is annual weeds, leaky, nitrate. You remember when... when um, our famous Rick Haney, you remember when he saw the protozoa and it didn't like the, the nitrate nitrogen? Those salts and the protozoas went down? Well, in an annual weed, lots of salts, lots of chemical fertilizer, very leaky, lots of weeds. So when I walk onto a farm, you know what the first thing I look at? You call it weeds, I call them forbs, but they're all over the place. Those are called the healers, I see lots and lots of scabs. Overgrazing, you're using too much herbicide, and it's always indicative your fuel prices are brutal. Indicator, indicator, indicator. I walk into a pasture, it's overgrazed, weeds are everywhere. The big forbs. Now remember, weeds are nature's healers and scabs. They're actually higher in protein than some of the alfalfa. They go down and pick up the nutrients and bring it back to the top. We've had sandy soils with just plants fix the pH. They'll go down and pick up the calcium, redeposit to the top. Phosphorus solubility went up. No more adding lime. Cover crops. It's amazing. Now, perennials. Now, when you go from an annual to perennial weeds, the biology is shifting. You are going now into more fungal. The bacteria here and the bacteria here are the same number. If you've got a tablespoon, you've got a tablespoon, be seven billion. They're both the same number in both 
transitions. But what changes is the fungal, the protozoa, and these other organisms change as you go to this direction. Now, if you're a grazer, and if you have woody invasives kicking in, what would you do? Most people say, well, I gotta pull out the tractor and take those things out, pull them out. I said, hey, why don't you get to the cause? Why don't you mob graze the shrubs, put a wire around, let the cows poop, pee, trample, raise the bacteria population, because it went too fungal on you. You weren't making enough bacteria to keep it in the grass system. Do you see when you understand the system, you become a soil whisperer? Biology, folks. You need to understand what you're doing out there with your tools. And if you don't understand what's going on in each of those parts, context. This teaches me context. Where are you at in the context? Because do you think we're going to solve and kill our evasives with, with herbicides? Raise your hand, whoever thinks that. We're losing the battle. It's the wrong approach. Ecology is to approach. Let me give you an example of an ecological approach. I had a rancher. He had prairie dogs everywhere. Prairie dogs, prairie dogs. And I tell you, boys, what's the first thing boys do when they have a prairie dog? What do they want to pull? What tool do they want to get? Let's pull out the, no, forget the 22 semi-automatic 50 caliber. That's what boys do, don't they? And the girls go, oh, my God. did that fix the problem? No. Ran out of shells. Out of money. What's the next tool? What's the things we do? We come with a physical tool, chemical tool. It's like going to the doctor. What's the first thing they want to, chemical surgery. If we can't burn it out, poison you to death, we're going to cut it out. Same thing in the ecology. Body wants you to approach it biological. That's why I call Zach. I say, Zach, what can I do for my wife? Biology. So you know how the rancher fixed it finally? Poisoning wasn't working. The bullets weren't working. So he decided, what if I bale graze on top of the, of the peridog mount, disrupt it, poop and urinate, piss off the prairie dogs, they move, and then put predator boxes up. Grass starts to come because you trampled the manure, you got carbon, grasses start cut. There's a reason prairie dogs clear everything around them. They, don't want, they want to be able to see everything around coming from. Fix the problem. Ecological approach. So when you go out there and you start thinking of doing something, are you coming from a biological Ecological approach, or are you coming from a chemical, physical approach? Careful. Approach is everything. Another thing about approach. Men, how many of you would have been married if you approached your wife wrong? Approach is everything, isn't it? So when you move, so this is our system. Bacteria dominant, we want to move this direction, okay? Okay. There again, those are the species. Look at the cropland. Look at the count of bacteria, pretty much on a teaspoon, very similar. But look what changes. Look at the fungi in a forest, 40 miles long in one teaspoon. 40 miles of fungi. The largest organism on the planet is a fungi in a forest, okay? So here's the thing, bacteria dominant systems 
This is why we're, we're losing the battle and we're approaching it incorrectly. As I move into more a fungal dominant system, I get balance. I have less weeds. And then our fruit trees and our walnuts and all that want more fungal dominance. I want to be here. Then I have less weed pressures. Very cool. Now, also, a lot of times the resistance for cover crops, people tell me, Ray, it's, it's, cover crops make my soil too cold. There's a great book by Dr. Geiker. He said, the best way to regulate temperature and moisture in the soil is a living plant. I just saved you 400 pages. It's that simple. Okay? Now, notice here, conventional tillage, no-till, 10 years, same sandy soil. Why is the snow melted here? Audience. Microbial activity, yes. More biomass. Very neat. Okay, I'm going to cut in here and share with you the most powerful example that we've ever recorded about why soil temperature matters at a greater ecosystem level. This is a story about soil, life, and death. In February of 2021, an Arctic wrecking ball plummeted southward through the nation, and it hit central Texas in mid-February. It was a catastrophe. We had over a week of freezing temperatures, power outages. People lost water. They lost access to food, and over 200 lives perished due to freezing. This was one of the greatest storms of all times in Texas. And while undoubtedly our modern civilization struggled, the wildlife in our state exponentially suffered from catastrophic losses. From cold-stunned sea turtles to saltwater fish kills, bat populations, honeybees, birds, and deer die-offs. Some of the most significantly impacted wildlife communities in our state lost up to 50% of their overall numbers. This winter storm quickly became known as the Snowmageddon. Now, during this snowstorm at Rome Ranch, we lost our electricity for a week, which meant we lost water. We lost heat. It was so cold that the diesel fluid in our tractor froze. For an entire week, we lived as if it was 1860 Little House on the Prairie pioneer lives. Except for the part where for a couple hours every day, we'd turn on my big Ford F-250 diesel truck and blast the heater just to find some warmth and kill some time. Aside from that, we had really bad cabin fever, so this helped. Now, after a week, the snow finally melted and we went outside and we started exploring. And what we found was horrifying. For an approximate five-mile radius, where Rome Ranch is at the heart and center of that circle, we counted hundreds of dead deer laid out all over the landscape, lifeless. They were bedded in the ice, in the snow, and they had frozen to death. Now, I remember clearly recognizing that something wasn't right with this picture. And every deer that we found dead 
It was bedded in an area with bare soil. They had been bedding in fields that were previously tilled and didn't have any green growing plants. They were bedded in areas underneath cedar trees where there were no green growing plants. We didn't find a single dead deer in any pasture that we had been managing regeneratively, where we were covering bare soil, where we had planted cover crops, cool season plants that were actually capturing photosynthesis and feeding the microbiome in the soil. So, like any good bro scientist would do, we grabbed a meat thermometer and we took it out to some of these areas. We started out measuring the soil temperature in the areas with the dead deer. I specifically remember going to one of my neighbor's fields that was recently tilled. We measured the soil temperature and then we crossed the fence and walked 10 feet onto our side. We measured the soil temperature there. And what we found was astonishing. It was 30% warmer, 10 feet over the fence, where we had coverage of the soil, where we had green growing plants. That 30% was the difference between life and death. You see, the microbiological activity in the soil that was living created a thermogenic effect that could heat and retain the core temperature of any animal bedding in that. Whereas the field, it was lifeless, those animals lost all their body heat and perished. This was the most profound illumination to the importance of living soil. Not only does it foster life below ground, but it cares for and creates life above ground. And now, back to Ray. You're not going to hear this, but I'm going to show you here. And the video is going to be poor, but this I am going to take you right into the winter of Kansas. And this is one of the agronomists, very awesome agronomist. And make sure it's muted so that you don't hear that over there. Okay, so what he's going to do, he's taking a probe, a little fiberglass probe, and he's going to measure how far he can go in the middle of the winter. This is Jake Blevin. Oops, wrong place, wrong direction. Okay, there's Jake, 14 degrees. And this is correct, this is incorrect, this is a monoculture species. I had that label wrong. So Jake's out there and he's saying, look, 14 degrees, I'm going to stick this probe out there. Conventional wheat. Yep, yep, pretty hard. It's frozen. Nothing went in. Now, he goes the next day right across with two multi-species mixes, a summer mix and a winter mix. He's pointing over there and he goes, hey, over there, there's the mix. There was the wheat. This is the mix. Notice the snow depth that the mix and the residue left on top. Now, what I want you to focus, I know you guys can't see it, but this is so darn cool. Even with the bad video, I just get goosebumps. Look at the way the two mix. Now, watch the probe. He's going to put it in. Watch this. Probe, probe. Went all the way in the soil. How did that happen? Armor? Nope. Armor's cool. It's, it stopped some of the snow. What happened? Living roots. Everybody say this after me. Aggregation. Aggregation. This should be a song. Aggregation. 
You know what the number one thing I look for in a healthy soil? Aggregation. The cottage cheese, the BBs. Takes 27 days. Takes a lot of carbon to make those. Those have the root systems, got giant pore spaces, folks. Cottage cheese, aggregates. He was able to push the probe down the winter and stop snow, and he capturing snow with the cover crops. Very cool. So those are aggregates, folks. The fusion, it's the biological fusion of sand, silts, and clays, and the glues come from the fungi, the bacteria, and the living plants, and they create these little hair nets. Awesome aggregate. This is a non-aggregated soil. This is a aggregated soil. Look at, the, look at the difference. Tillage destroys aggregates. Over-fertilization destroys aggregates. Bare soil destroys aggregates. Legumes, monoculture legumes continue like alfalfa. That's why alfalfa gets like rock. How many have an alfalfa farm? How many have alfalfa on their, in their farm? Gets like rock, doesn't it? We blamed it on the hay removal. Oh, no. You have no aggregation. You got one taproot. So you know, what, you know how I fix an alfalfa field? I plant a grass. Pretty simple. So your soil is this incredible system of aggregates. That's what it really is. It is this incredible caverns of fused aggregates creating these areas and pockets of water where microbes swim. It's this subaquatic ecosystem and one tillage event disrupts that. And then you can heal it again with covers. Okay, so we're gonna go speed it up here. Let me see how farmers are implementing this. Now, we'll talk some practical stuff. I told you this is the design of my mixes. We do summer mixes. You have to come to a class to learn how to do summer mixes, winter mixes, because it takes a whole three, four, five hours. We design. You can't learn this in a couple of minutes. Sorry, can't do it. It took me 15 years to learn. I'm slow. These are the summer mixes. We do cool season mixes. We design our mixes according to your crop rotation and your goals and what you're doing. You just don't throw seed to throw seed. It's expensive. There's the cool season mixes. Now, this is really cool. This is the time I threw. This happened in 2007, 2006. This is the year I threw my graduate level wheat science book in the trash can. This is what happened. Farmers, what they did is they did some test plots. This is the year that I learned that collaboration is more powerful than competition. Does competition happen? Yes. But nature's overall working principle is collaboration. Let me show you. 1.8 inches. The farmers planted lupin. Now, this is North Dakota. So test plots is 1.8 inches rough, folks. North Dakota's brutal. I don't know who would live there. It's extremely dry, extremely cold. And Gabe says it takes it makes sure that no riffraff go up there. Okay, so here, lupin, monoculture, monoculture, monoculture. And what the farmers did, they took all these seed and put them in the last plots. And look at the way the biomass. Forget the numbers. Let me show you visually. Monoculture, 1.8 inches of two, uh, uh, turnip, dead. Oil seed, dead by itself, monoculture. 
Now look what happens when you mix all the seeds together. There's the plots that are dry. How come we got that much, four or five times more biomass with only 1.8 inches? Class, what happened? What did it do? They collect the architecture on top, architecture on bottom. They're sharing resources through our biscuit mycorrhizae fungi. They're collaborating. Oh, but then people throw this in my face, but Ray, you don't have any research. You smoke cover crop, remember? They tell me that all the time. I said, well, yeah. Well, look, I found a research paper here. It says, Ecological Letters by Mark Burtness, Professor of Biology at Brown. You just write this down. You get that free paper. It's called The Stress Grading Hypothesis. It says, when natural systems actually get stressed, they do not compete. They collaborate. We don't understand the power of life like Zach's been telling us. Oh, but it only happens in North Dakota. I've had people tell me that. This is Canada. Monoculturae, multi-species. Do you know why my, I design mixes that have 5 to 10, 15? So how do we come up with that? Right here, folks. You can Google him and you see him on YouTube, Dr. David Tillman. Read him. Watch him. Read his papers. Because the way I, the way I function, the, the farmers wait a minute at work. And I said, okay, did somebody do this? Dr. David Tillman is a brilliant ecologist, went out there in prairies in Minnesota, and they started picking, getting graduate students to count species and functional groups. Look what they came out. Since the prairie is my model, why wouldn't that apply for me and for my mixes? Look at here. When we got to five species all the way to 15, look at the biomass. Boom. Went up. No fertility. None. We do not fertilize. I do not fertilize these mixes. They work off these functional groups. What does it mean by functional group? A grass is a functional group. A broadleaf is a functional group. A legume is a functional group. I have three legume, uh, three functional groups at least in my mix, and anywhere from five to 15. Now look how it tapers off. Because remember, seeds are expensive. I want that biomass, right? Okay, let's gonna wrap it up real quick because I can see you guys, I need a break, Ray. I need a break. Farmers. I love farmers. They're the best mechanical engineers you can ever imagine. There's a reason why NASA loves to hire farmers. They build stuff like this and like that. When I showed this at the PASA, Sustainable Agriculture Organic, and I said, folks, what is this? And the whole audience went, of a thousand people, it's a cancer machine. That's what they said, Zach. And I said, you know what that cancer machine does? It drops cover crop seed on standing corn. So that 
Farmers tell me I don't have time. They can drop the seed, they harvest the corn, and there goes my beautiful multi-species cover crop, nurturing, feeding my microbes in the spring and going into the winter. Careful how we judge. Then, in the spring, they come in and they roll that living mix down and create a living skin like the forest and the prairie does. That's called the detritus sphere. And then the planter plants corn, soybean. We're doing this on pumpkins. It's beautiful. We're doing this squash. This has gone national. Thousands of acres now planted like that. We are down. We are eliminating herbicides. In fact, we were losing the battle in Arkansas. Nobody wanted to farm some of the farms in Arkansas because pigweed was invading them. They could not stop it with Roundup. They could not stop it with the herbicides. But you know what stopped it? Cereal rye, rolling it with a little bit of chemistry. Agroecology. So, go ahead. Okay, so what was, okay, so I'm going to explain it right now. Excellent. So how is CRI, so when you roll the CRI and it hits the dough stage, it's easy to kill. You can mechanically kill it. You don't have to use a herbicide. And then when you create that blanket, it covers the seeds, and then uh, pigweed hates it, and it's also aleopathic. It releases natural herbicides. So it's an amazing, it's one of my favorite cover crop is CRI. It is tough, it is resilient, it can grow up in cold areas, and you can kill it mechanically and you don't have to spray it. Show you in a second. Look at the soybean, look how much, very little weeds in the early stages. That's no-till tobacco. No-till cotton. We're doing it in tomatoes. This is the way I was taught how to do, this is new, where I went to college. My professors taught me, you can't, you have to grow pecans this way. Bear looks like the moon. Why did they tell me that, Taylor? Competition, gonna steal my water, my nutrients, right? Oops, wrong slide. There it is. That's how we grow pecans now, walnuts. We have diversity. Those plants are communicating with the pecans. The pecan uh, yields stabilized. No more insecticides. Nutrient cycling went up. Design. Look at the cereal rye, and you can plant tomatoes. Okay, very cool. Yes. Say, hey, there's, I tell you, farmers are smart. Now, here you need to write this book down. Who loves to garden? This guy's one of the most brilliant. He looks like ZZ Top, and I love him. He's a good friend of mine, brilliant man. He's got a book called No-Till Intensive Vegetables. He makes 105000 an acre, and he only has three acres. No-till, organic. Buy his book. He's brilliant. There's another group. Everybody got it? Brian O'Hara, and he's got YouTube videos. He's a savant of microbes. I love that man. He's got an awesome library. He's one of the very few well-read farmers I have been exposed to. 
impressed. Another group is Singing Frog Farms. They are amazing. They're the other no-till farmers. That are, they're the Brian O'Hara's of California. They are impressive. Look at the kind of money they are making. Look at, their, look at the diversity they have. Doing the same thing, no-till organic. Do you know how you get, you know how the other organic farmers treat them? Poorly? Because they refuse to till. Here's what I've come to realize, folks. I have hope. I really have hope. Years ago, I had no hope. We can do this. We can heal our cropland very easily. And I know we can fix our range. And so people ask me, Ray, if I live in the city, what can I do? I said, folks, spread the movie Kiss the Ground to everyone. You heard Will Harris. Eat regenerative food. Yes, I still buy organic food. Because I support the fact, I love the attitude. Last words. Folks, what concerns me about the regenerative and the organic and labels is I'm afraid that we'll get into this tribalism and we isolate people because to me, if you eliminate one herbicide, I'm so proud. You're going down that journey of regeneration. If you eliminate one tillage, you're going down that direction. But what happens when we get labels and we have, and we stratify people and we classify them like, in, in, and you say, okay, if you're not doing all this, you're not regenerative. You don't know their condition. You don't know if they're having to deal with their family and what the issues they're dealing with in their personal life. But they eliminated one herbicide? I'm so proud. You eliminated one tillage? Yay! Love takes care of that. It gives room to grow. So when we go out there, folks, and we're working with conventional people, and you're dealing with conventional family members, deal with them in patience and love. I used to try to push it in arrogant. I was arrogant about it. I'm going to force you. I don't do God well. We can't change minds and hearts, folks. But we can be a good example in the way we eat and just love them. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. No, Ray, you are awesome. Thank you so much for coming out to Fredericksburg, Texas, coming out to the first annual What Good Shall I Do conference, which, by the way, we just put tickets for our second year online. They're available. Go over to forceofnature.com and grab your tickets because this event will sell out. And if you want to be a part of something that's bigger than you, bigger than me, a collective community of people who are devoting their lives to solving so many of the greatest challenges our civilization faces with the lens of soil health and the potential of regenerative agriculture, well, then we invite you to join us. You need to be here. So again, massive shout out to my brother, Ray Archuleta. If you feel like you were drinking from a fire hose of information, I really encourage you to check out Ray's six principles of soil health. It's like such a powerful foundation, whether you're managing 100,000 acres of land in northern New Mexico, 50 acres of land in Hawaii, or you live in a major urban complex and you have a yard or a small garden on your porch. 
and you're wondering, where can I start? How do I dive into this journey into soil health? And his six principles are so wonderful because they apply in all regional geographical contexts. They're all adaptive, but it's a really good solid foundation for making some pretty simple decisions on your own land or in your own garden that are helpful to transitioning and to moving forward in that regenerative future. And to wrap up the episode, I want to read an actual factual review that someone left on our podcast. And so it's from an individual that's name is pays to be brave, which I agree. You know what doesn't pay to be obedient. So I'm down with this guy. We're already buddies. Five star review. So informative says we all get so caught up with our busy lives. It's hard to do all the research on what's going on with our food system in this country. Thank you, Force of Nature, for this informative and enjoyable format. Love your show. Well, how about that? Well, thank you, Pays to be Brave. Anytime you're in Central Texas, just come on by the ranch. We can take off our shoes, get grounded. We can eat some soil, share in the microbiome of this ecosystem. We can get as weird as you want. If you want to have your review read on a future episode, then I suggest you give this show a review. That's the only way it's going to happen, people. So I appreciate your time. And remember, the plant is the mouth of the soil. And just like your mouth feeds you, your mouth helps you breathe, your mouth keeps you hydrated. It's hard to argue that mouths are not important for an organism to live. So maybe between this time and the next time you listen to an episode of Where Hope Grows, you can put a plant in the ground. Farewell, my co-creators. 